thank you very much indeed. Friends, it's a joy to be back. You have no idea how much we uh, value and appreciate the fellowship here at Points Pass, having spent several years here. We still talk about it as our church. When we're talking to people about what's happening, we say in our church, and then we realize, well, we're no longer part of it, but uh, it's still our church. It's in our minds in that way. I sort of feel this morning that I'm like a, a, a bishop in the uh, it happened way out in the west of Ireland one time. Uh, there were special meetings, at least it was coming to the summertime. And uh, the little farmer that organized the speakers during the year, well, he had no problem. He had a usual, usual routine of speakers. But, uh, of course, in the summertime when it came, there was many visitors about. And this young, this young man, this man was uh, uh, required to book a speaker for each Sunday. And one year he got through the speakers well for the holiday season he got them all booked but one. Just one Sunday and he couldn't get any. He tried his best. And he happened to make this comment to someone and they said, well, don't you know Bishop so-and-so's staying down the road here? He's got a house down here. Why don't you ask him? Well, the little farmer was really perturbed about speaking to the bishop. But however, he went as a last resort and spoke to him, invited him to come along on that occasion. And uh, the bishop was delighted. He came and what a good time he felt he had. But the trouble was when he was being introduced. The little farmer was as nervous as a kitten and uh, he didn't really know what to say and he, he, he explained how that they'd been looking around for a speaker uh, and uh, he says, you know, a, a worse speaker would have done but we looked everywhere and we couldn't find one. Uh, and uh, I think maybe I'm a bit like that today. This was a special occasion, arranged at short notice and it seems as though they've looked around for a speaker and they couldn't find one but I'm here today and a high. And I'm so delighted to be here and wish the pastor congratulations uh, on his 6-0 birthday. However, let's turn to the Word of God. Before we do, let's just pray. Father, we want to thank you for the occasion that we're here today. Thank you for the pastor, for his family, and we pray for his dear wife that soon her injury will be healed again. But Lord, we come today too to worship you. And we've come, Lord, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. And so we need the Holy Spirit's help as we would open the, the Holy Word of God. And we ask, Lord, that you will speak to each one of us and minister to us each in our own particular needs. And grant as we leave this place, we will say truly, it was good to be here because here we met with the Lord. Grant this to us, Lord, we pray, because we ask it for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would open your Bibles, please, at Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, <clears throat> and we're just going to read the first, three, first four verses of Hebrews chapter 3, but you'll notice that it begins with the word wherefore. Now, in the scriptures, where you get the word wherefore or therefore, you always ask yourself, what's it there for? And so that actually links it to the previous chapter. Now, we'll not be touching it initially, but we're coming back to it again, uh, to what it's there for. So let's read the first four verses. Wherefore, holy brethren... Partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. And every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. May God bless to us that reading from his precious word. 
The book of Hebrews is known as a general epistle. And that's simply because it's not written to any particular church or to any specific person. It was written to Hebrew Christians who had been dispersed from Jerusalem around the time of the stoning of Stephen and who found themselves suffering persecution from the society into which they had removed. So they were gone from out of the frying pan, as we might say, into the fire. Because of the culture they were and the persecution they were experiencing, the zeal of these believers was beginning to dissipate, beginning to wane away because of the pressures of the community and society they were living in. They were not maturing spiritually. And the danger that they would lapse into a state of compromise or that they would become carnal or backslidden or even return into the vain traditions of their fathers was a great danger. In fact, the writer sums up for us the spiritual state these people were in in chapter 5. Keep your Bible open. We'll be in Hebrews, but we'll not be leaving Hebrews very much this morning. Chapter 5 and 12 to 14, he says, Now here's the condition you find yourselves in. For when ye, for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And there become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. My, here were people, and they were living in a society that was pressurizing them and causing them to, well, perhaps begin to doubt things that they'd learned in the Scriptures, and they weren't growing the way they ought to be growing. wonder could there be someone like that with us this morning. wonder do you know someone like that who's not growing the way they ought to be growing. So Paul wrote this epistle to encourage the saints, and to remind them that they, who they were and to whom they belonged. In verse 1 of chapter 3, he calls them his holy brethren. And then he delivers the remedy for their discouraged state and their lack of zeal. He says, I want you to consider, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. You see, they were thinking too much. They were concerned too much about their natural, their physical state, about themselves. And they had lost the time spent with the Lord. They weren't spending the time with the Lord, with each other in the house of the Lord, and therefore they were becoming weak in their faith. And I think it's interesting that, again, towards the end of this epistle, my, for, the, for the, the preventative condition or state, Paul gives exactly the same, same message. He says, now, in case you get discouraged, or in spite of getting discouraged, he says, I want you to give them clear advice. He says, consider the Lord Jesus Christ. We have that in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. So here to motivate the same saints, when they were in danger of feeling discouraged and finding the journey difficult to prevent them from becoming weary and faint in their minds, when they felt in the depth of despair and self-pity, Paul says to them now, consider Christ. Consider Christ. You see, Paul's desire for these believers is what should be our desire for all believers in chapter 6, verse 1, that they should hold fast to the fundamentals of their faith and that they should go on to perfection. Now, that's not ultimate perfection. That simply means go on to spiritual maturity. 
accepting that Christ Jesus, their Savior, was God's final word to mankind, and he was the only mediator between God and man. And to encourage them, Paul reminds them that they are holy brethren. This should have been a real stimulant to them, as they remembered that through their faith in Christ Jesus, they had become children of God. And if children, then they had become heirs of God and joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, being in that sort of condition, chapter 2 and verse 11 tells us that the Lord Jesus was not ashamed to call them his brethren. What an encouragement to them. What an encouragement to us, dear friends, this morning, that we who are saved are the children of God and that the Lord Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brethren. I wonder, could there be someone here this morning, and you're born again, but the pressures and challenges of life are bearing in upon you, and you think that the secular culture we live in and we find ourselves in today is causing your joy to dissipate. Your first love is becoming weak and becoming to wane. So Paul's epistle and convinced counsel to the Hebrews is appropriate to you. Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes of your circumstances. Raise them from the horizontal and turn your eyes upon Jesus. Consider him. Commit your way unto him and he shall direct your path. But Paul also reminded these saints that not only were they holy brethren, they were partakers of a holy calling. Something I think which is missing today so much in Christian life. Peter reminds them of that heavenly calling irrespective of what our cultural pressures may be and we might find ourselves in. Here's what our calling is, but he who hath called you is holy. As so be ye holy on all manner of conversation. But it's written, be ye holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. And this is where the Holy Spirit, who indwells us, exercises her ministry within, his ministry within us, if only we will allow him to do so. And because God never asked us to do anything for which he has not provided the resources, we can live holy lives and follow in Christ's steps that were holy, harmless, and undefined. Holy, his relationship to God, I believe, is the Godward aspect of his life. Harmless is the manward aspect of his life. He was harmless towards men. He was undefiled, and that was the selfward aspect of his life. And because of this, and because of these things, he was separate from sinners. And that doesn't mean that the Lord isolated himself from sinners. He didn't. No, no, he was separate. He was different from sinners. There was a distinction between the Savior and those who were godly around him. And that's how it ought to be for us today, dear friends. We are to be holy and Christ-like so that we are different and distinctive from the sinful people, the ungodly people around us. Now there's much more we could say about the Savior and Lord. So this morning, I'm going to do what Paul wanted to do with the Hebrews. I want us to consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, the Lord Jesus. Thinking about these two offices or ministries, the apostle and high priest, These are centered in the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet they're very different from each other. They're very different, Uh, yet they're complementary to each other, even though they're different. In fact, you could say that Christ's ministry, firstly, as his apostle, 
And secondly, as his high priest, took the Savior in two very different directions. Two very different directions. You see, the title apostle means a sent one. A sent one. So the apostle of our profession, the Lord Jesus, was sent from being with God to being with man. Don't we read that in Ephesians 4? When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. He was a sent one. He was the apostle. And when he came, he lived a sinless life. He died an agonizing but an atoning death. You remember he was buried and raised again from the dead. And the Lord Jesus have completed the work which he had been sent to do as an apostle, went from being a man amongst men to being a man in the glory. Now here's a wonderful truth, dear friends. And we'll see this in a moment. It's a wonderful truth that today there's a man in the glory. Now it seems to me that it was after the Savior's finished work at the cross that these two ministries of apostle and high priest, which were centered in him, were exchanged. I say that because when I turn to Peter's epistle, 1 Peter 3, I, I discover in verse 18, here's what it says, For Christ hath once suffered for us, uh, suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened in the spirit. I see that as his apostolic ministry. He was God's apostle, and that was his function that he was sent for. But when you go down to verse 22, it says, He has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Now, I see that as a high priestly ministry now. You see, having finished the work of God's apostle, The risen Savior is now engaged in his unfinished work in heaven as our great high priest. He is constantly and continuously representing us before his Father. My friends, it's important for us to grasp the fact that when we got saved, the Lord Jesus sustains a very precious threefold relationship to us in this present age. He's our Savior. He's our high priest. And he's our Lord. His relationship as Savior, of course, relates to our past. Salvation relates to my past. The time when the Savior redeemed me, bought me with his precious blood, and delivered me from the penalty of sin and from the powers of darkness. And through receiving him and believing on him, I can say today that he is mine. Dear Savior, we were singing, thou art mine. How sweet the thought to me. Let me repeat thy name and lift my heart to thee. Mine, 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 I know thou art mine. Savior, dear Savior, I know thou art mine. Yes, he becomes our Savior. He saves us and he's our Savior. Then we have his relationship as high priest. You see, having got saved, I go on to appreciate that the Lord Jesus is my high priest. He's in heaven. And that I cannot only say he's mine, but I can say I am his. I am his. And this is a precious truth to grasp, dear friends. Because it means if we're truly saved, then I am his as well as he being mine. And that means that I am not irrelevant and I have his responsibility. 
It's as, as our high priest Jesus promised, I never leave thee nor forsake thee. It, it's as our high priest, he said, I am with thee always, even unto the end of the age. It's my high priest, I hear him say, my grace is sufficient for thee, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. You see, not only can I say that he is mine, but I am his. And then his relationship as our head. You see, when we become Christians, we're immediately placed or baptized into the body of Christ, of which he is the head. That means, dear friends, that we have become the bond servants of Christ. We are his, and he alone is our Lord. This also means that we can not only say that he is mine, and I am his, but we can say he and I are one forever. He is forever only his. Who the Lord and me shall part. Ah, with what a rest of bliss Christ can fill the loving heart. Heaven and earth may fade and flee. Firstborn light and gloom decline. But while God and I shall be, I am his and he is mine. Isn't that a marvelous thing, dear friends? To think that he is mine and I am his and it's forever and forever. Paul actually gives us that in Romans chapter 8. He confirms that wonderful truth. He says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, principalities nor powers nor things present, nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not possible to remove the head and separate between the head and the body. The organism would be totally destroyed. And you and I who are in Christ, we are no longer simply a collection of individuals living as we please. We are members of the body of Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit, and we have become ambassadors for Christ. And you see, that's where the distinction comes in, doesn't it? It should be obvious that we're no longer, no longer the citizens of this old world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world because we're ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's just think again as relationship as great high priest. Did you ever consider why it was absolute essential for Jesus to suffer and die as God's apostle before he could become our great high priest? Well, I want to suggest to you, first of all, there are two key verses in verse, chapter 4. It's only over the page from where you are. Chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Seeing then we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Now, at first glance, looking at these words superficially, it might appear that they simply teach us where Jesus is. He's in the heavens. He's in the heavens. However, I wondered, could it be, when we look at the wider context of Scripture, could these words cause us to consider not only where he is, but how he got there? How did he get there? He passed into the heavens. You see, for our Lord Jesus Christ to be effective as our great high priest, to be the one who is able to sympathize with us and to empathize with us, he had to pass the way that we are now passing. 
Why was that necessary? Well, so that he would be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Why was it absolutely necessary for Jesus to become a man, to suffer abuse and be despised and rejected of men before he died? What qualities did the sinless, spotless Son of God require so that he could become God's apostle and die as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world? Or or why did he have to endure the contradiction of sinners against himself in order that in his ongoing role in heaven as our great high priest he should be effective? Well, my friends, this is where the wherefore comes in, you see, at the beginning of the verse, or the beginning of the text, wherefore. Because if you look through to chapter 2, you'll find wherefore. Verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Why? That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, even the devil. And deliver them who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore? In all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. You see, it was being made like unto his brethren. And living as a man amongst men, that Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered and was made perfect. Let me just read those verses to you in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Because it tells us there that though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Now, we must be very careful when we read those verses. We must never think that the Lord Jesus passed ever passed from the state of imperfection to the state of being made perfect. These verses simply mean that through his human sufferings and through the persecutions that he endured as a man, Jesus became complete and perfect in human experiences. And that's why he had to do that, so that he would become a merciful and faithful high priest. What a precious thought this ought to be to us, dear friends, trying to live for him in this present evil world. To know that today there's a man in the glory, Christ Jesus. He's representing us in the presence of God as our great high priest. But he's one who has passed the way that we are passing and who knows all about our struggles. That's why we read in 4.15, for we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And when Jesus was here as God's apostle amongst men, he voluntarily subjected himself to every sinless human experience common to man, but which previously was unknown to him experientially. You see, there's the needing for need for perfection. Remember, at Syker's will. At Syker's will, the Lord Jesus Christ learned experientially what it was to be weary. He was weary in the journey. In the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by, 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 by Satan, we, we read that he was unhungered. He, he knew practically what it was to be hungry. When he hung on the cross, he said, I thirst. 
And he had learned practically what it meant to be thirsty. And at Lazarus's tomb, he, we read that Jesus wept. He, he learned practically what the pain of bereavement actually is. And while Jesus was here upon earth, he lived subject to every human experience. And now that he's in glory, there's not a pang that rends my heart, but the man of sorrows has a part. And I'm sure there are times, dear friends, when all of us, our lives, when the circumstances crowd in upon us, and we can't see through the, to the end of the tunnel, never mind that there might be a light at the end of the tunnel. And it's, isn't it at times like this that we're tempted to ask the question, why? Ask the question, and, and to wonder, does Jesus really care about my situation? Friends, I want to assure you that because he is a merciful and faithful high priest, he does care. Didn't the hymn writer get it right? And I'm only quoting the first line of each verse. Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth and so? Does Jesus care when my, is, my way is dark with nameless dread and fear? Does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist some temptation strong? Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me and my sad heart aches till it nearly breaks? Is it all to him? Does he see? Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. And when the days are weary and the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. Beloved, be assured Our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our representative in the presence of God, has passed the way that we're passing, and he's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Let's just gather that all up for a moment, because it's important. As we consider the Lord Jesus Christ functioning as our great high priest, surely it'll prevent us from becoming weary and faint in our minds. Because if we're following him, he who is our shepherd leads us only in paths of righteousness. My, and that's where we should be just now. In fact, he's gone a little bit further than us because he's been striving against sin and he paid the ultimate price of going to the cross. Beloved, Jesus never asked you and me to do anything that he himself has not already done or to pass anywhere that he himself has not ready passed. And it's because the Lord Jesus, as God's apostle, became a man, and he himself suffered being tempted in all points like as we are, that he understands the depth of our temptation, and he understands the degree of our our weaknesses. And it's because he has passed into the heavens as our great high priest, that we're assured of a sympathetic hearing and an understanding heart when we come boldly to the throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace and to help in time of need. Oh, dear friends, up to now we've been discovering the fact that Jesus passed into the heavens and the way that he passed. But what is he actually doing in the heavens? Well, chapter 8 and verse 1 tells us, We have such an high priest. He is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Isn't that a marvelous? You know, every word there 
grips us with majesty and power. My, he's seated at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens and his authority of his position. As God's apostle, the Lord Jesus Christ came to the lowest place that earth could offer. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. The Lord of glory came to a manger in Bethlehem. But that was only the start of his downward journey. During his lifetime, he said that foxes have holes and the birds of the air of nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And yet that was nothing to what lay ahead, because his earthly journey ultimately ended on a cross of shame. My, even the death of the cross, where Jesus was identified with the lowest of the low. We read in Galatians 3 that cursed is every one that hangeth upon a tree. However, it was from the tree that he cried, Tetelestia, finished. And having finished the work that the Father gave him to do, God raised him from the dead and received him back into heaven. Ah, friends, what a contrast. What a contrast between earth's appreciation of the Savior and heaven's appreciation of him. He was the only perfect. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. But Jesus was perfect. And what did they do? They put him on a cross, didn't they? The only perfect man there ever was. And the only time earth lifted up the Savior was when they hanged him on the cross. But my, when he got back to heaven, they hailed him as its sovereign and Lord. And his position in chapter 8, verse 1, exudes power and glory and authority. And now, dear friends, our Savior, as our great high priest, is on the highest seat that heaven affords. And it's his by sovereign right. As King of kings and Lord of lords, he reigns in perfect light. So, first of all, we've established, first of all, in how he got to heaven, and then his purpose in heaven. You know, the scripture reveals to us that Jesus has a threefold purpose in heaven. First of all, he is a mediator. Now, a mediator, his ministry as mediation is a ministry that relates to sinners. You see, a mediator is someone who comes between two opposing parties. He knows both parties and he endeavors to bridge the gap by bringing the two together in a state of harmony and reconciliation. And because we were all born as sinners, my, there's an infinite gap. There's a great gulf fixed between us and God. And the Lord Jesus Christ's role as mediator was implemented when he died on the cross. Because it was on the cross with two arms outstretched to save that he bridged the gap between sinful man and a holy God. It was at Calvary, by the shedding of his precious blood, that he opened up a way by which you and I can be brought near to God. Because we were far off. We can be reconciled to God because we were enemies of God. And beloved, if you're not saved this morning... If you've never been born again, whatever you might think, the Bible teaches us that you think what you're thinking because your thought pattern has been blinded by Satan. It's been blinded by Satan. Your thoughts are at enmity with God. You're not in God's family. You're in Satan's family, and you're an enemy of God. That's where you are this morning. My dear friends, it couldn't be worse than that. Couldn't be worse than that. But because God loves you, because he loves you so much, he sent his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as his apostle 
To die for the sacrif- as a sacrifice for your sins. To die not only as a sacrifice for your sins, but to die as your substitute. So that you need not remain at a distance from God. But dear friends, and you need not endure eternal torments. My, what a marvelous ministry he has. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The idea today is there's many ways to God. What a life in the pit of hell. There's only one way. Jesus didn't say, I'm an alternative way to heaven. He didn't say, I'm an optional way to heaven. He says, I'm the exclusive way. No man cometh to the Father but by me. My, we praise God for his ministry as a mediator on behalf of sinners. And he'll save you today, if you're willing, because this man is able to save them to the uttermost, all who come unto God through him. Secondly, he has a ministry not only for sinners, but he's a ministry for saints. He's an intercessor. He's an intercessor. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. My, we we have already seen the great blessing of his intercessory ministry to those of us who are saved. To realize that there's a man in the glory. One who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. One who understands our human weaknesses. Praise his name. He's praying just now for you and for me. My, when we don't know how we should pray, isn't it precious to remember that Jesus is praying for us? What a precious promise and thought that is. To sinners, he's a mediator. To saints, he's an intercessor. But friends, beloved, to sinning saints, he's an advocate. He's an advocate. Now, we know that God's people ought not to sin. But unfortunately, because we still have the old nature, the flesh within us, the flesh lusteth against the spirit. And from time to time, we do sin. We do sin. Therefore, John says, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. You see, when a Christian sins, dear friends, there are two processes which take place, one on earth and one in heaven. On the one hand, on earth, the requirement is in 1 John 1, 9. We who are sinning saints must come to the throne of grace and confess our sins. For if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from our sin. Isn't that amazing love? Amazing love. That's what should happen on earth when saints sin. But what happens in heaven is when we confess our sins, a process begins. You can read through Revelation chapter 12, I think it is, the devil is cast out of heaven. He has access in heaven, and he's there as the accuser of the brethren. You see, when a saint sins, the devil sets it up before God. Oh, my, he maligns us before God the Father. Now, I know you know this scene, but it's worth repeating. Can you imagine a courtroom scene, dear friends? Uh, and you have sinned as a, as a believer, uh, and you've come and you've confessed your sin, and you're in the dock, as it were. Uh, and across the way, there's the, the, there is the accuser, the devil himself. And he's there to accuse you. 
And on the bench, there's God the Father. But your advocate is God the Son. And the devil gets up and he says, Now, God, on such and such a date, that fellow Crawford did such and such a thing. And then my advocate gets up. Unlike a human advocate, he doesn't say, Father, this fellow Crawford's not a bad lad. He hasn't a bad record. He doesn't say that sort of thing. He simply says, Father, Crawford is guilty. But I have paid for those sins. I have paid for those sins. Do you know what the Father says? There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. I tell you, friends, we have a wonderful Savior. We have enjoyed or are enjoying a wonderful salvation. And he has made provision, if you're not saved, he's made provision for you to enter into that place of, of relationship with him today, to become one of his children. And if you are saved, friend, no matter what the pressures of life might be, Jesus is praying for you as your intercessor. And if you're here this morning, I suppose every one of us could put our names in this patch as saints who have sinned. My, Jesus is our advocate and he has paid for my sins. Hallelujah. What a savior. What a savior. Oh, friends, I could go on. Talk's beating me. But listen, listen, friends, we have a wonderful savior, a wonderful salvation. And wonder, wonders, it's not just a static experience becoming a Christian. It's not something that happened historically and there's no more. No, no, it's, it's a progressive thing. It's something that grows and grows onto perfection is what the apostle said ought to be the case. Let's pray together. Father, we have just joyful hearts today knowing what you have done for us and what you are doing for us. And yet we're humbled, Lord, to realize that we who were unworthy of the least of these, your blessings, Father, can enjoy every one of them. And we thank you for your great salvation. Thank you for your son, the apostle that you sent. Because, Father, truly he finished that work in the most amazing way. Completely finished defeating Satan and death and hell. And Father, we thank you that that was just the start of his work because as our great high priest, he ever liveth. And he's there but your right hand and he's making intercession for us. Ah, oh, Lord, we just praise and thank you for that. He understands all about our struggles. And Father, we thank you. Thank you for his advocacy. Because we all sin, Lord. We all do. But we thank you that when we do sin, if we confess it, he, he steps in as our advocate and he pleads his precious blood that cleanses from all sin. Father, please take away anything that has been of me this morning. That would be of no value. But please write indelibly upon the hearts of your people the truths of your word and the glory of your so great salvation 
And help us to be people, Father, who are not static, but who are going on, growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, experientially, day by day and week by week. We give you thanks for this time together and ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.